Rinpoche first requests us to enter into these teachings in the noble disposition of bodhicitta, wishing to study in order to help all sentient beings by bringing each and every being throughout the vast infinity of space to the state of utterly pure, most perfect, and most precious enlightenment. This afternoon in our study of Dharma, uh, we continue with our study of the three levels of vows, that is the outer vows of, the, of self-liberation, the pratimoksha, the inner vows of the bodhisattva, and the secret vows of Vajrayana. And this afternoon we start the section on the secret vows of Vajrayana. And he, Dambasun Sutta, Sishana, that Chutanjing and Tatu Yong, Songhog Chu Yambari, Robert, that Bogunus Yonless and Kanonji, and the Hando Kachiva Yambari, Kari Lana, Tangaros Songhog Chu Yonless Lani, the new Monsieur, the new Lagam. ま、だわらそばだもぼしせ。だてんでしょ、よばれ。だてな、た、たんじやぼち、そまひな、てたんじんでぶめばれ。てんでら、てにたんじそんがな、たんじてかりんだぼちそんが、てそんせてじんでだ
First, before looking at the commitments, uh, it's very good that we have a clear understanding of what is the difference between what is called sutra and what is called tantra, these two major areas of the Buddha's teaching. Uh, What is sutra level of dharma practice? What is tantric level or vajrayana level of Buddhist practice? Need to be able to distinguish clearly between those two. If we don't know clearly what each of these categories of practice involves, then even though we might think we're doing them, we might be doing something uh, that isn't them at all. If we don't know what uh, Vajrayana actually means and is, for instance, we could be doing what ostensibly is a Vajrayana practice, but actually, because of the very way we're doing it, it's a sutra-level practice. Or, the other way around, we could be doing what we're doing, a sut- what seems to be a sutra-level practice, but we're doing it with Vajrayana ideas, so it's no longer simply a sutra-level practice. Or, we could be doing any of those, sutra or Vajrayana level, but the way we're doing it, it's neither of them. For instance, we might be doing uh, what's usually called a deity practice, we might be visualizing, and also we might be within the visualization working on the channels, chakras, energies, um, the bindu, and so on. 
And so, does that make us a Buddhist? Does that make it Buddhist practice? Not at all. It's not necessarily Buddhist Vajrayana practice. Because we find, for instance, in Hinduism, they have deities, they have practices which put you in relationship with your deity, where you think of the deity, you go through certain actions. They have channels, they have chakras, they have pranayama, meditation. So then, what's the difference? What's the difference? Is there a difference? And if there is, then we need to know it. Otherwise, if you meet uh, Hindu practices, say, what do you do? Oh, I visualize this um, deity. Oh, I do that too. I visualize a deity. Oh yeah, and beside that? Oh, well, I work on the subtle inner energies and uh, control. Oh, we do that too. Then, oh, it's the same. We're exactly the same. Most of the actions could be seen from that point of view as very, very similar. So, if there is a difference between the two, we need to know it. We need to know what makes it Buddhist practice, beside these mechanic, these mechanisms of visualization, working with energies, what is it that makes it uh, Buddhist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If um, amongst Buddhists, if you said to somebody, oh, I don't think you're a very good Buddhist, where you're practicing, then they'd probably get upset at you. Uh, and that, that would be quite a normal human reaction if we criticized another Buddhist for what they were doing. So like this, if as Buddhists we criticize another faith and we say, oh, I don't think it's very good what you're doing, then we should expect a very similar reaction. It's, it's not a, something that would naturally make people upset because we're humans. And that's not good because we are uh, committed to a path of the bodhisattva, of kindness, and uh, it's the contrary to what we're trying to do, to say things or do things which make other people upset, angry, and so on. Mm-hmm. 
Therefore, if we want to truly value what we're doing, the choice we're following of being Buddhist, and truly value that, while of course having respect for uh, the others, then we must really know why what we're doing is the best choice. It's no good just having blind faith in it and thinking, I'm Buddhist, Buddhist is best, Buddhist is great. Um, we need to know the reasons why the Buddha's teaching is so wonderful, why it's so special. We need to know uh, what distinguishes it, what can be achieved by it. We need to know how it is different from other things which on the surface look very similar. But then if there is a difference, we need to know what it is. And because our choice is Buddhist, we need to know why it's better. Obviously we want to choose the thing which is best, that's very natural. So then we need to know when things are very similar, if there's a difference, why this difference makes one thing a better way to follow than another thing. Not to know that, just to be Buddhist because you're Buddhist, is blind faith. And blind faith is part of ignorance. Ignorance is something that is to be given up as a one of the things that as Buddhists we're trying to shake out of our minds any sort of confusion and ignorance. So therefore we need to know very clearly what the Buddha's teachings are. And uh, Rinpoche gives the example of uh, a child. If you told a child that the child's father's no good, um, then that wouldn't be a nice thing to do anyway. But... Um, the child is not in any situation actually to judge the father. Not at all. So it's better to tell the child, your dad is great, because it will help the child. Even if the father isn't that great, there's no point telling the child, because he can't understand what's going on. It's all beyond, above his head. Didn't understand that sort of thing yet, probably. So there's no point. There's no point about it. Uh, and so, uh, if ever we are going to enter into any real dialogue about the values of faiths, then we need to know very, very, very well what's going on. Jacibu Pamare, then 
The Buddha's teaching happens to be very, very vast, very extensive. And the Buddha's teaching has been preserved as uh, the, what's called the Buddha Shashana, or the Buddha Doctrine, um, or the, in the texts which are the Tripitaka. And that very well preserved body of what the Buddha himself actually taught was then analyzed expounded upon and presented by the great Indian masters like Nagarjuna, like Chandrakirti and many, many other great masters and scholars. And as they work with what we generally call the sutra level, which covers all three baskets, sutra, vinaya, abhidhamma, the sutra level of teachings, then they produce the great Commentaries which became the references for the various philosophical traditions of Buddhism. Great texts like the, uh, um, the root text on the wisdom of the middle way by uh, Nagarjuna and so on. In that way the various philosophical traditions have been well established and we should have some clear notion of what those philosophical traditions are saying by studying them. ตีนี้ตาหมอสุนเนวจีนาตาตรกกดงลงกกตาเต็มบาดูนั้นเนี่ยดีดีมุบอยู่บาดิตาเตยงมารุโซตาจีเคเนเชกนาอุมบอมเ
is a tradition of oral instruction handed down from generation to generation that goes along with the practice. And that oral instruction, that heart-to-heart or person-to-person advice, um, covers such topics as the view, that is to say the understanding of reality behind the practice, the meditation, meditation that you do, how to do it, and then what's called conduct, which applies to outside formal meditation sessions. If we resume all of that, all those, the vastness of the sutras and of the tantras, and we try and pinpoint the difference, we come to four main differences that distinguish the sutras from the tantras and which show us how the tantras are the highest of the teachings. The first thing which um, distinguishes them and which makes the Vajrayana superior is the view. The view in each of those. And the view tends to be more limited in the sutra level of teachings and it tends to be um, unlimited or uh, unrestricted through... The actual word is... is, uh, Darkness or ignorance, it sounds a bit strong, but anyway, that's what it says. So the one is a little bit more, I think limited is the best word, restricted. And the other one is beyond those restrictions. Vajrayana view doesn't have those limitations, those restrictions of the Sutrayana view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The reason for this difference in the view is that in Sutrayana, what's called the view, the understanding of reality, tends to be much more heavily focused on shunyata or voidness, emptiness. And it doesn't develop that much the nature of what's called appearances manifestation. In Vajrayana, the view that underpins the practice not only has the same equivalent understanding of voidness, 
but it has a very clear and excellently developed understanding of the nature of appearances, of the things that manifest to the mind. This was what makes the view not limited by that lack of understanding of appearances. If we go any further with this topic, then, uh, well, we've got need to take quite a time. Because once we start to develop these differences of um, view concerning uh, voidness and appearances, then it takes us into vast and subtle areas of thought. And also, if we take the various... Uh, uh, traditional views within Buddhism and particularly those preserved within Tibet then not everyone agrees so this takes us into more complicated waters but if we take simply our Kaju view without explaining it we can say that from a Kaju point of view this is definitely how we see it that the Vajrayana has a much m- more vividly clear and complete understanding of Manifestation as well as voidness. Narosa Kajipi Ta Yanton Yanton Si Narosi in the Jetayon. So Ji, Ti Suni, Leon Kyobari. So this is because in our Kaju tradition we embrace a view or a philosophical stance which is known as devoid of other. Not everyone agrees with that. So to come back to the uh, point, this first difference between sutra and tantra is uh, that the view of sutra is more limited. The second difference is in meditation. In Vajrayana, there is an enormously greater wealth of meditation technique than there is in Sutrayana. Mm-hmm. Hogononi,
For instance, in Vajrayana meditation, we have all of the different techniques and types of um, visualization stage, uh, development stage, generation stage, whichever word we use, meditations, visualizations. We have completion stage meditations of so many different sorts. These aren't found at all in the Asutriyana compared to Vajrayana. The number of meditation possibilities, techniques available, is very, very much less. There are just so many of them in the uh, Vajrayana. Some of them what are called characterized with very specific things to meditate on. Some of them profound beyond characteristics type meditations. And with this very great particularity in that in the Sutrayana level of teachings one has to abandon mind poisons, desire, anger, jealousy, pride, confusion. Uh, The process of meditation is to shed these, to get rid of these before the realization can emerge. Whereas the specificity of Vajrayana is that it has profound method which enables one to actually use those imperfections of the mind as a basis for the practice itself. でめ、オンボンディンドンタバラソバイナ、ドメソンチソダンラ、ドメソンチソソンラソバ、ドメモンボジパダ。トソダバジョンにソンジガバリセテニズキオバレ。ヤナヨン、モラテンディエニボガバ
then following the Mahayana path could take much more than three endless cosmic eons. It could take hundreds of endless cosmic eons. That's a very, very long time. So when we have that sort of perspective, and we know that in Vajrayana, then it is possible, it's possible, to attain enlightenment in just one lifetime, as Milarepa did, as some of the great Indian Mahasiddhas did. And if not in one lifetime, if one maintains pure samaya, then in several lifetimes or up to possibly 16 lifetimes, if the samaya is kept pure. When one compares those two, then there is an enormous difference between Sutrayana and Vajrayana. The fourth difference is that the um, Mahayana path suits those of Dalla faculties and the Vajrayana path suits those suits those of Sharpa faculties. ตาเตลายงกวาจีฮากกกบาริตีอุมบุโนตตะเปนะตะงารอซุเดลิโยเจตะตะตะพะเจนตะหอญอนเลเซเกอินจิเรตะงารอซุคาซอะอุมบุโ
Actually, the explanation for this is the following, is that when through practice we gain what is called the view of Vajrayana, the insight, which gives us this understanding of reality, when that view is attained, then by the very definition, one is somebody of sharp faculties. It's that sharpness, it means the acuity of perception of the nature of things. Until through practice it's attained, then it doesn't mean everyone who's practicing Vajrayana is a sharp faculted person. Yeah,当我们呢,当多的,这个大概的,当多的,这个大概的,当多的,这个大概的,当多的,这个大概的,当多的,这个大概的,当多的,这个大概的,当多的,这个大概的,当多的,这个大概的,当多的,这个大概的
So this is a good opportunity for some honest introspection and to ask oneself, am I a Vajrayana practitioner? Have I got this view? Have I acquired the view? Or if not, then, oh, am I a Mahayana practitioner? Do I have understanding of voidness? Do I have great compassion? And then if we're not a Mahayana practitioner, then say, oh, well then, maybe I'm a Hinayana practitioner. I've got great self-discipline and observing the conduct and I'm freeing myself from samsara. And if one can't fit into any of those three categories... (laughs) Maybe we should ask people to put their hands up to say which one they think they belong to. Joking. If you can't fit into any one of those three, this could be quite embarrassing, so we won't ask for an honest hands up survey. Maybe in the future. ตาตะนดงกะเชปะยินดาวะตะเรนดอซิดินะโมยาตะบะเชปะกอมบะตะบะโมมะโมกะเชปะกอมบะทะโมมะโมกะเชปะตาชิโอปะลานันดิมะล
The word for commitment, which is dompa in Tibetan, means in its etymology to bind. What we are binding are our body, speech, and mind, including all of the habits of body, speech, and mind. So we're binding those three things along with all of the habitual tendencies. Tati, Dombar Sijeta? Takaniri Lanana? Clan, what you saw? Lulasa. Long what da? What's that? You need to say. The means for binding those three things, the means are threefold. They are to visualize the deities, they are to recite the mantras, and they are to let the mind settle in its in the true nature, what's called the dharmata. The discipline for being able to bind body, speech and mind through visualization, mantra and setting the mind in its essence the discipline for doing that is obtained through empowerment. And so that, through that we have a, the essence of what bompa or commitment means. Or this word samaya, if we take the Sanskrit. Tamajinusi Unimayba. 
This process of binding means that uh, at present we have what's called uh, the ordinary body. Now this uh, ordinary body does not mean just our own human body. It means the entire body of reality as we perceive it. So it means our own body, everyone else's bodies, the world that we perceive around us, of the rocks and the trees and the mountains. All of that is the, it's called the everyday body. The reason, and that's, so that's perceived as people made of flesh and blood, is perceived as the environment made of rock and earth and leaves and all those sorts of things. This is perceived in the way it's perceived because of um, the mind's conditioning and history. So when we bind that deluded perception, which is not true, when we bind it, we bind it by uh, identifying it with the utterly pure, true nature of everything. Uh, So we visualize that all the beings become the deity and all of the uh, environment becomes the pure land of the deity. Um, it's this identification with what is pure and true that binds the impure and untrue. <laughs> ก็ลานเปเดวานะบุชอบาเรตาคาริเรลานะงารงตะเปยาปุเรงารงสุลาเรงารงทองคาเรงารงสุชูเรเตงารงสุกองดิมุบุชีอบาเรตะลาเตย
good or bad. That's what the, the binding is through um, identification. So to give an example um, of the mind and how it is, then if a Tibetan came into this shrine room, they come through the door and look around and they'd probably be really happy because they say, oh, look, some nice tonkas and they'd Buddha statues and nice artwork, Tibetan style, they'd feel, oh, this is a great place. It's a temple where the, all the things that we value and treasure are represented. They'd, have a, they'd feel good coming in here. Whereas maybe somebody from another faith, especially a faith which doesn't like imagery, so let's say uh, a Muslim came in here and saw this, even though it's exactly the same temple, they look at it, they'd see all of these images, they'd see the statues, they'd probably feel uncomfortable to say the least. They'd probably feel very uncomfortable, unhappy about it, and it wouldn't at all be the same reaction. The shrine room is the same, but depending on who comes into it, the effect is very, very different. The whole way the thing is perceived is very, very different. And this is just a simple example of how our mind's reality is so subjective. It's so much a projection. And this binding of the mind, this uh, practice of Vajrayana, helps us understand the mind in all of its um, aspects and manoeuvres. It gives us the insight into how the mind does project in all sorts of ways. Tandisi So what we do when we bind the mind through deity practice is that we take our way of perceiving whatever it is that is as it is because of our conditioning because of our subjectivity uh, we take that and we work with it and by identifying ourselves and other beings with the deity, by identifying places around us, the, the world we move through, with being the pure land, then we create a new conditioning of the mind. And that new conditioning of the mind, which is rooted in what is sacred and truth, gives us a pure perception of reality. It 
Gradually, as we develop the practice, the old conditioning fades away and a new, pure relationship is established. ตะนี่ดราเตยงเตยนดาวะเรมริมมบุยบาเรลอเลจิเรติตอมบะลีทมอลาคะทวากะยะปะชอสุนจิโยมาเรลาลาลาเปเอเนมบุยนาลาลา
Considering the teachings he's been given, giving and that he's giving, we might start to think of him as a troublemaker. So that in the future, when he comes back, we think, think oh, here comes the troublemaker again. Where's your mind? Where did it come from? Where's it just gone? Ah, there's this vows to keep and there's those vows to keep. He's <laughs> not just asking us to sit nicely in an uncontrived state with the mind naturally settled in the deepest reality. <laughs> <laughs> so that first point about the Vajrayana vows was to do with the um, <coughs> essence of the vows, or we can say the definition of the vows. So the second point are the categories. ジェジタテニモゴヨバレカンガルドコノヒエヤテリズモゴヨバレジタタタテソガソンマディソヨンロドトモゴオンドトナタジディヒヨドンチュジタテニズシヒヨバレタンガロゾサマワジェナラカジ
If we make that into six, then the last one, the Anottara Yoga Tantra, or the highest Yoga Tantra, um, is um, further subdivided into two, where we have the um, Father Tantra, with its emphasis on skillful method, and the Mother Tantra, with its emphasis on wisdom, primordial wisdom. ตะเนี่ยตะเตียนจีกะตะวันตะวะกะเรเรลานะตะมอกะนอลานะริมันตะปะโยบะเรอือฮึตะกิจาริเจริมูริตรอนซิริเซเซนะวะตะริเฉม
one person or another. And when it comes to these four tantras, these four classes of tantra, then we find that they are suitable for different people. One type of tantra speaks very much to one type of person more than another. So, when the Buddha taught, it wasn't because he needed to express himself. It wasn't because he had something to explain from his own point of view. Uh, All of the Buddha's teaching is there to benefit his followers. That's the reason that teachings of all different sorts were given to different people in different circumstances. As far as what the Buddha himself had realized, he had the total realization of the void nature of mind. There's nothing to be said about that. He has nothing to express or to tell. So what his teaching is what people need to receive in order to benefit. The third main category in this um, text after the definition and and the telling us about the main categories of Vajrayana vows is about how the vows are obtained. Somebody who hasn't got that commitment, hasn't got that level of practice, how to get it. Mm-hmm. First, these, uh, the samaya needs to be obtained from a guru. And not just any guru, it needs to be a fully qualified guru, a truly authentic guru. And we can define that authenticity by four characteristics. 
First, the guru needs to have uh, realized what's called the view. In other words, their own profound inner realization in their mind, in their heart, needs to be the understanding of the view, voidness, or the, the vajrayana view of voidness and appearance. The second quality is that they need to be very expert in the actual rituals and in the oral instructions that go with them, the person-to-person advice that's passed down through the lineage. They need to be expert in those practical aspects. Thirdly, it needs to be a person of intrinsic compassion, someone who's naturally compassionate. And fourth, it needs to be someone who, himself or herself, has perfectly maintained the vows. All four of those conditions need to be united for somebody to be called an authentic guru. The view, the expertise, the compassion, and the pure conduct. ยอเตญีดะนิพพะตะมารุคตินะกันตุตะเตระนะคะทวงาทวงตุเตนตุมุบุยสวงอะเรติสุดุกะนะตะเตญีละงาทวงตุเตนตุเอ่อรัมปะ
The second quality is that of compassion. And when a teacher has compassion, then this means they really love their students, they really care for them. And they're all the time, through that care, thinking, what's going to be good for this person? What's going to be, in the long term, making this person find happiness? What's going to be helping them to overcome their problems? Through that concern, they'll be really uh, a very effective teacher seeking out the very best thing for their disciples. And if there is a teacher who is a very, very gifted person, very skilled, lots of expertise in the methodology and the methods, and but who doesn't have compassion, then they're probably more likely going to be concerned with their own reputation, uh, whatever it is, their, their reputation, with even making money out of what they do, with writing books or whatever it is. They'll be much more concerned about their own cleverness, about their own expertise, than they will be about the student's well-being. It's a very different set of priorities. So then, if a teacher, a guru, is very compassionate, really cares for the students, but if they lack the skill, then no matter how much they care for them, they're not really going to know what is the best advice to give. They won't know when it's the time for this aspect of Mahayana practice, this aspect of Vajrayana practice. No matter how much they care, they're not gifted enough or skilled enough um, to give good advice. So, um, to sum it up, 
then those two qualities, when they're both present, they really do make for a good teacher, they make for a good guru. It's somebody who really cares for their followers and somebody who has the skill and the expertise to guide them along the path, however much that expertise enables them to do it. Now, this doesn't really matter whether they carry a title of Rinpoche, Tulku, Kempo, any of these external qualifications. Rinpoche said, even if somebody has none of those qualifications at all, but if they care for the ones that they're looking after with compassion, and they have true skill in the way they guide them, then he said, as far as he's concerned, that person is like a Buddha. That person is a Rinpoche, a very precious person. That person is a, a Kempo, which means a friend in virtue, and so on and so forth. So then they're the qualities of a teacher, of a guru, because we're looking at how a pure vow, a pure bond can be obtained. So first that's the qualities of the teacher, from the teacher's side. Then from the follower's side, I don't know quite what's best to call it, disciple, student, whatever, from the follower's side, then there are two main qualities. One is compassion for sentient beings and the other is faith in noble beings, faith in the Buddhas and enlightened beings. Compassion for sentient beings and faith and devotion to enlightened beings. If uh, a Dharma practitioner doesn't have those two qualities, then there's not much point in pursuing this establishing or trying to establish a Vajrayana Samaya. It will be pointless. And the reason for this is, it's, well, not the reason, it will be like giving somebody precious or sophisticated tools and they're never going to use them for anything. They're wasted. They're pointless. Because if there is the Vajrayana practice and it's used to benefit sentient beings because of a person's compassion, that's good. If, uh, so if there is compassion, they'll be used. Probably if there's no compassion, then the teachings won't be used to help other people, which is their main end purpose. If there is no faith and devotion, then there won't be the proper attitude of trust and respect for the teacher and the teachings, and the practice by its very nature 
won't be able to be accomplished uh, properly. So if there is a disciple who wants the teachings but doesn't, who lacks those two qualities, then it's just a waste to give them. So then the next part of the, these teachings takes us on now from the qualities of the Lama and the student on to the actual process for attaining the Samaya. And this is attained through empowerment. And so this section deals with the different types of empowerment that belong to the various classes of Tantra. And then depending whether it's Kriya, Charya, Yoga Tantra or Hayash Yoga Tantra, then there are many different ways of bestowing empowerment. Some features are very uh, dominant, such as um, what's called the um, Buddha crown, empowerment of the five Buddha families, which is found in many of them. Or when we come to the highest Yoga Tantra, then by far and away the main thing are the four stages of empowerment. Rimadabamujiwa, Um, each of these um, different types of empowerment has its own uh, specificities and things which uh, need to be done. Um, Rumche doesn't know here how many people have uh, the words are specific how many people have acquired empowerment. The number of people who have received empowerments Probably a lot. Uh, oh, sorry, I missed out a whole section at the beginning. Yeah, first of all, there are the um, uh, there are all these different ways of empowerment, because uh, just like when we had the self liberation vows, there are different stages of vow to suit different people. Uh, we had the lay people's vows, we had novice vows, full monk nuns vows. These suit people's aspirations and also their possibilities of being able to maintain the vows. In a similar way, these different empowerments and the uh, samaya that comes with them suit different people at different stages. That's why there is a range. But then, when it comes to uh, the vow, there is what is called attaining or acquiring the vow. And there is 
This is not the same as simply attending the vow and receiving the symbolic transmission. So, uh, again, this is something Rinpoche says uh, we'd need to understand quite what that means for each stage of the empowerment, what truly receiving it means, and then we'd need to understand for each step of empowerment, we'd need to think, has that happened for me yet or not? So each person would again, just as we looked at, you know, are we Vajrayana or Mahayana or Hinayana practices, we'd need to know what each stage of empowerment is and then to ask, have I really received that, acquired that? Mm-hmm. So that's uh, it for the formal teaching this afternoon and tomorrow we'll move on to look at the uh, particular vows and commitments that once once received the empowerment that there are to keep in terms of uh, the different uh, tantras. Uh-huh. And Rinpoche uh, invites your questions. Yes, Maggie. I'll ask him, although that's, uh, that's using the two English words in a way that doesn't correspond to a Tibetan equivalence, but I can ask the question because I know I understand the difference. Mm-hmm. ปะเจ็ดชินลับตบเรตันเนรินบะเรเรลามะนิกิยองสุสอกปะนางทบกุกันโดเตปะเจเอ่อเมกังยองนาเกอ่าปะเจ็ดชินลับตบเรตันเต
Yeah, one can draw a distinction between the two, um, but not too, not in too clear-cut a way, because it depends on the circumstances. But a distinction can be drawn in the Tibetan. It's probably the easiest way to do it. There's what's called a, uh, the total empowerment. It's called um, utterly complete empowerment, is one thing. And there's what's called the subsequent manifestation, or jenang, in Tibetan. It's either yonzok, absolutely complete, or jenang, what's called the subsequent manifestation. And nearly always when we have the sort of empowerments we receive here in the temple, they're all that second sort. Uh, They're not the fully complete empowerment uh, in its various stages, uh, which can be very, very complex. Um, Both of them have blessing. So we can't, although very often in the way in English and to make people, make it easily understandable for people, we say either you can take this as a blessing or else it can be like this. Then Rinpoche said that they're both blessing because the very nature of the ceremony is the blessing of body with the deity's form, blessing of speech with the mantra, blessing of the mind and so on. It's a blessing um, in either case. It's just that in the full form, which is sometimes given, for instance, in uh, the retreat, then not only is the ceremony itself complete, um, but it is also given to those who are going to and practice it. Um, so there's a, there's a difference in the complexity of the ceremony, and there's a difference in the uh, intention when it's given in the jenang, the second form, it authorizes people to practice. But in the retreat circumstances and in traditional circumstances, one of the deeper meanings of empowerment is it is the first step of very intense practice of, of, of that. Um, Does that answer your question? Yes. I think, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, regarding the empowerment of the chair, uh, if you have the chair in self-defense to protect someone else, would that still be breaking the vow? The social topic don't begin on that. And then, so chopper, you're Then, uh, uh, Rangi Dachashedang Latinimayimpa Pena Mishenda Sungwichir Michik Sena Demena Michik Rangla Napachikindu Rangla Sigire 
ตัวนี้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็
is just the same as killing them for any other reason. The very fact of taking another person's life means that the vow is broken. So it's, it's very sort of straightforward in that respect. And then I'm sorry it took so long. I was just trying to understand it as a sort of a little technical flip, which is saying, imagine that two people are in a fight and they kill each other. Right? They've got guns and they, somehow they both shoot each other, but they don't die straight away. Then, if one person has the vow and the other person doesn't have the vow, then whether the person who has the vow loses it or not depends on who dies first. Because if the other person dies before the person who's got the vow dies, then there's been a killing that's happened before death and the vow is taken from the time you take it until the moment you die. So that means that then the vow has been broken. But if they're both dying, but the person who's got the vow dies first, then the other person hasn't died before the person who had the vow has died. So that means they haven't technically committed murder during the duration of the vow. So they've not lost the vow. As far as the <laughs> vows of individual liberation are concerned, then it's pretty it's straightforward. Taking another life loses the vow. But in the circumstances you describe, uh, what there is is a difference in motivation. And there can be a difference in motivation. Uh, there can be a Mahayana motivation behind an action, which means the karma will be different, but still that pratimoksha vow is lost. The difference in motivation doesn't affect the losing of the vow, which is determined by physical circumstances. Uh, it gets really complicated because once one gets into the details and the technicality of what exactly these pratimoksha vows imply, what breaks it, what doesn't break it, and when you start to get into all the different possibilities, uh, he said before, when he was teaching the just these pratimoksha vows, just the self-liberation vows, not Mahayana or Vajrayana, he was doing this in the uh, Trangarimache's college in Sanath, the higher education college, and he said they were seven months solid working on the individual liberation vows and they still hadn't really finished it properly. Because you go into all these different technicalities and possibilities of, of that. He said it gets really complex. Oh. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
in the uh, in our scriptures in the Tripitaka, then on the Vinaya, there are thirteen tomes, thirteen large volumes. So when Rimache was teaching the Vinaya, the Patimoksha aspect of Vinaya, um, in the Shedra, then he got through twelve of those thirteen tomes, and there just wasn't time given the yearly schedule to do the thirteenth one. Then <laughs> Dombang Pena <laughs> That's strange. Strange in a couple of ways. First of all, um, it is strange because it's back to front. Really, if, if you're taking a commitment to do something, it makes absolute sense to know what you're doing. Otherwise, uh, I mean, that's the whole point of taking a commitment. You're saying, I'm not going to do this, or I'm going to do this. And if you don't know what it is, then it's not even really a commitment in some ways. That's true, but then, so, but then it does happen that people take vows and then they learn more about them afterwards. Um, so, in a way, that is strange, that we are very often we take a first step without knowing too much what we're doing and we understand more about it as it goes along. Um, really and truly, we ought to know what we're doing before we do it. That's the best. But he says, actually, it's really pretty simple. It's not like what we were doing this morning. 
where you have to do shamatha and then find that amazing subtlety to stay within shamatha and let the mind discover itself and rest itself. That's challenging. It might take, no one knows how long that will take. As far as vows go, it's so straightforward. You just see the list and it says, well, you take a vow not to kill. Not to kill means this and this and this and that. It's, it doesn't take very much to understand it. It doesn't take very long to read it. Of course, when the whole thing is developed as he was developing it in the Shedra with every possible possibility, the history of these vows and everything like that, then it becomes a very vast affair. But for someone who wants to live by certain commitments, it can be very simple and straightforward. And also, because of this flexibility of the vows, you can start by taking the vows that you understand, say, refuge plus one, refuge plus two, precepts or plus three or then when it's the novice it's only 33 which are quite simple 32, 33 uh, 30 something and um, so it's not that difficult mm-hmm. Consani <laughs> Yumena, he Rimache is remembering one uh, Lama in Tibet who was called a Kempo Sutimnodro. Very, very, very gifted and skilled master. And um, he would give ordination, but whenever he gave ordination, he would only give it uh, when people promised to when people understood what they were doing. So for those who could read and write, those who could read, then uh, they would have to promise to learn properly what the vows they were undertaking meant. And for those that couldn't read, because there are many people in Tibet who couldn't read, then they had to learn the essential precepts by heart. And so he made a point of only 
giving ordinations to people who had a very clear idea of what they were doing. He would spend some time explaining it first, and then for those who could read, he'd get them to promise to him, to make a, a pledge to actually study these things further. For those who couldn't read, then it depends on the vows, but uh, there are the four root downfalls that everyone needs to know, and then depending whether it's novice vows or the full monk's vows, although the full vows are many in number, there are 17 essential ones, I think it is in there. So whatever were the essential ones, they had to learn those by heart and understand them clearly. The teachings that Rinpoche has given us on the vows, uh, for instance, on the self-liberation vows um, in the first days of this course, um, are very few indeed compared to all of the teachings on those things. Um, this was really the essence of a summary. It was the most concise form because we have such time constraints in this course. And so he really gave us the most essential things, the key points. It couldn't really get any shorter than that. And so what he says is, please, because it is the simplest, shortest form, please learn it. Don't leave it in your notebooks. In your notebooks, it's no use to you. Um, This is something that we need to understand and especially if we do if we have uh, taken those vows or some of those vows then uh, it's no good thinking I've taken vows and I've got it written down somewhere what I'm supposed to be doing uh, where you have to sort of look in a book or take out a notebook or think which shelf did I leave that file on that tells me what I'm supposed how I'm supposed to be living it's not sense this is really a very very short form he says he's come here with a hope to help us he hopes his teachings bring some benefit, but that benefit is no, not very much if everything just stays a scribble in notebooks. It's something we need to take into our hearts and understand and uh, learn. Rimache says if, for instance, say you've taken Upasaka precepts and somebody asks you about it, you say, Oh, have you taken vows? They say, Yeah, I'm a 
layperson, I'm a upasaka, and they say, oh, well, what does that involve? And you say, oh, well, oh, that, thing, that fat Kempo who came to Samiling explained it all and I wrote it down in a book, just a moment, I'll go and have a look and tell you about it. Then <laughs> it would be really embarrassing. It shouldn't be like that. <laughs> <laughs> went through all the bother of talk, talk, talk to tell us about it. We went through all the bother of writing it down like that. So um, if afterwards we don't learn it, then his time's wasted, our time's wasted.